I'll be reading from Zechariah uh, chapter 9, starting in verse 9, going through verse 12, first of all. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off. And he will speak peace to the nations, and his dominance will be from sea to sea and from river's end to the end of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I have set your prisoner free from the wilderness pit. Return to the stronghold, O prisoners who have the hope. This very day I am declaring that I will restore double to you. I'll be reading from Jeremiah now in chapter two, beginning in verse 11. Has a nation changed gods that were not gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this, and shudder. Be very desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. They fume for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. Heavenly Father, we're reading, it seems like, our own words sometimes. Uh, the, the ways of us, I mean, that we turn from you so quickly and look at the world and the evils or our own mistakes and flaws and we try to work it out instead of coming back and remembering you've set us free. You did everything. And thank you for that because we were hopeless without you. Help us understand more of your greatness this morning and understand what you've done for us because all of eternity isn't enough time to give you thanks for it. We're shallow in our thoughts. Help us, Father. In Jesus, your Son's name we pray. Amen. Good morning. Happy Palm Sunday. We don't have a PowerPoint this morning, so I'm going to tell you my title. My title is, You Can't Drink from the Fountain If You're Still Decorating the Pit. And that, I pray, will make more sense to you as we proceed. We'll be talking a fair amount about waterless pits this morning. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, our family spent more Sunday mornings at the lake camping and water skiing than we did in church. I didn't get saved until I was 16 years old. Um, but one of the things I remember from a Sunday school class at some time was a flannel graph. Y how many of you know what a flannel graph is? You can tell how old we are. And it was flannel graph about the triumphal entry. You know, the things I remember about that were, were it was all positive. It was like this, this really uh, cool event um, where, you know, these people, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, and the people are meeting him outside the city, and they're laying down palm branches and clothes, and they're making a, kind of a poor man's royal carpet for him as he comes into the city. And they're crying out in loud voice, Hosanna to the Lord in the highest. Uh, they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, that word Hosanna didn't mean a thing to me when I was a kid. I, I knew it must be a nice thing to say, but I didn't know what it meant. Uh, and then 
you know, much later after getting saved, and it wasn't until quite a few years after that that I that I finally got to learn what that word means, uh, Hosanna. It's from it's from a Hebrew uh, f- phrase, Hoshiana, which means please save, please save. And it was shortened by Jesus' day and uh, through kind of the melding of Aramaic and Hebrew, and it was it's Hosanna, save. There's a psalm in which that word is found in the Hebrew, and it's Psalm 118. Uh, it's, a, it's a messianic psalm. It's a psalm that pointed forward to the coming of the long-promised Messiah King in the line of David. I'm going to read you just a few verses from that psalm, starting at verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, do save, we beseech you. That's where the word is. Please save. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity or success. And then blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. This was a prophecy about a time when... God's promised Messiah will come into his place and people will praise him and they will acknowledge him as the one who saves. Mark's gospel account tells us that as Jesus approached the gates of Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday riding on a donkey, the people shouted out those words from that psalm that had been written nearly a thousand years earlier. Mark writes, many spread their garments in the road, others spread leafy branches which they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed after were crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. In the various gospel accounts, we find other things that were also said by the the crowd. And they included declarations about this person coming into the city, like the son of David the king of Israel. In Mark 11, it says, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. They were shouting these things as Jesus is coming. All of those proclamations made it very, very clear that the the crowd that was gathered in Jerusalem on that day at the beginning of the week for the great annual festival of Passover that would occur at the end of that week, that crowd Uh, And by the way, the city was crammed full for these three pilgrimage festivals each year. The people that were gathered there believed that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, who was riding in on the back of a donkey, (laughs) was the long-promised Christ. He was the one that the prophets in the Old Testament had talked about. He was the one that that psalm talked about. The Messiah foretold through the Old Testament prophets for so many generations, the promised descendant of King David who would reign on David's throne in Jerusalem over all the nations in righteousness and justice and whose dominion, whose reign would be forever. And you know what? The crowd had it right. They were right. Ever since 2 Samuel chapter 7, when God declared his covenant promises to King David. It has been good and right for Israel and all mankind to anticipate with great joy the coming of this 
long-promised king and savior. It still is good and right. So how is it that that multitude could start out that week so very right about the identity of the one who was coming into the city, and then at the, by the end of the week, that same crowd in large measure was crying out, crucify him, crucify him. What happened? Well, the answer, I believe, is connected to pits, the holes in the ground. Spoken of in the two passages that Jonathan just read, one of which is a marvelous prophecy of the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, the prophecy written down by Zechariah. Pits that are designed to capture and hold water that sustains life, but broken pits that can hold no water. As Jesus approached the city and the crowds began raising their voices in loud and enthusiastic adoration, the heart of Jesus did not match theirs. His heart was not filled with jubilation. His heart was filled with anguish. Did you know that? When I was a kid, I did not know that. I had no, no notion of that whatsoever. I thought the tri triumphal entry was all good. But when Jesus was coming into that city, his heart was filled with grief. Luke 19, verses 41 and 42 says, And when he approached... As all these people are adoring him, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, Jerusalem, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. Friends, I believe that is one of the most piercing indictments and assessments of the human heart that, will, you, that was ever spoken on earth. They do not know the things that make for peace. The people who shouted out those words of adoration for the King of Kings were celebrating the right Savior, but the wrong salvation. And the reason they were so grievously wrong was because they did not know the things that make for peace. Peace is another great word in the Bible. The Hebrew word for peace is shalom. My favorite translation of that word is well-being. Well-being. Shalom, as God defines it, is not merely the absence of conflict in relationships. It is the presence of true and pervasive well-being in all aspects of life. And in both testaments of God's Word, the only, the one and only way that any human being comes to have shalom is through right relationship with God. There's no other way. In the great prophecy of the triumphal entry that Jonathan just read for us from the book of Zechariah, chapter 9, prophecy written more than 500 years before this event occurred, God said to the people of Jerusalem, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
Now listen to the next verse. And he will speak peace, shalom, well-being to the nations. Not just to Israel, to the nations, to all peoples. He will speak shalom to all nations. And his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And in the very next verse after that one, God tells the inhabitants of the city of Jerusalem how they would come to have the shalom that he's promising. How they would come to have the peace of God. He says, Zechariah 9.11, As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I have set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to the stronghold, O prisoners who have the hope. This very day I am declaring that I will restore double to you. And the day he's talking about is the day of the triumphal entry of Jesus. God's declaration to the people of Jerusalem and to all the nations of the world was that, that God, that, that when he sent his son and his son came into the city that belonged to him as the heir of the, of the kingly throne of David, that God, by the blood of his covenant with them, would set them free from the waterless pit. What Jesus put into motion at the beginning of that week and finished at the end of that week would be the liberation of sinners from the waterless pit. He would turn back prisoners to the stronghold of provision and protection that only God can give. That was God's promise. These would be the things that the long-promised Messiah and Savior would, would ride into Jerusalem to accomplish. That's what Zechariah was foretelling. These would be the things that make for peace. But what deliverance was God talking about through Zechariah? What does it mean to rescue people from waterless pits? That's a very important question. From what waterless pit would the people in Jerusalem and in every nation be set free? How, how every individual in Jerusalem answered that question would determine which of them would have a place in the kingdom of Messiah and which of them would not. And how you answer that question right now determines, it, it tells you whether you have a place in that kingdom or whether you do not. What deliverance must you receive from God in order for you to possess real life and real well-being, real shalom? When God spoke the words of that great prophecy through Zechariah, the Israelites had already heard from God about waterless pits. Many years earlier, through another prophet named Jeremiah, God had indicted his own covenant people for exchanging the one true God for gods of their own making. And that's the other passage that Jonathan just read. In Jeremiah chapter 2, I'm going to read it again. 
Verses 12 and 13, be appalled, O heavens, at this and shudder. Be very desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves, to dig out for themselves with their own hands, cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now, a cistern is not the female version of a brethren. I know, I know, I've said that before, and it's just a groaner, isn't it? It's just horrible, but it still gets a laugh. A cistern was a pit hollowed out in the ground by human hands for catching and holding rainwater. In ancient Palestine, they didn't have huge man-made lakes and water treatment facilities and great big pipes that would, that would move water into every household like we do. They had wells, and they had cisterns. And if you, if you dug out a cistern to capture rainwater, uh, if you didn't line it with plaster, with cement, the water would come in, and it would just seep right back out into the soil. They didn't have the, you know, cement soil like we do in Richardson. <laughs> And if the plaster cracked, it would still lose water, right? You'd have a broken cistern. Well, God employed this very well-known piece of ancient Near Eastern life to make a powerful spiritual point. And the point was that real life, true blessing cannot be obtained or sustained by the work of human hands. Let me say that again. Real life... True blessing cannot be obtained or sustained by the work of human hands. Any work that human beings do in an effort to get or to keep true life and well-being for themselves is the equivalent of a, of a cistern in the ground that is broken so badly that it will never hold water. And if you try to patch it, it's, it's so messed up it's just going to shift again and crack again, and it's not going to hold water. There's nothing you can do about it. You can't fix it. The Bible from cover to cover defines true life and true well-being as right relationship with God. And verse read in the worship this morning, Jesus said, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Real life is relationship with God. It's the intimate personal knowledge of God and his knowledge of you. That's what really counts. Just as a broken pit in the ground can't hold any water, any work that is done by a human being can never repair the catastrophic break in the relationship between God and man that our sin has created. Only the miraculous and gracious work of God alone through Jesus Christ can restore us to him. Anything else, anything else that looks like life and well-being, anything other than relationship with him, is just a pathetic, crummy imitation. Anything that we can do will never be anything, anything better than a mirage, an imitation of real life. Jesus made the same essential point with the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. 
the water that served as the physical prop for his gracious appeal to that woman was drawn from a well, not from a cistern, but the point was very, very much the same. After an initial conversation about water from that well, Jesus said to the woman, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. He would have given you living water. Two verses later, he says this, everyone who drinks of this water, the water from this well, shall thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Three times in those two verses, the direction of the giving is critically important. I will give it to you. You won't give it to yourself. That dear woman passed from death into everlasting life that afternoon. <laughs> in fact, she forgot the reason that she came to the well in the first place. She, she dropped the pitcher that she was going to use to carry water back to the city. And just left it right there. And she ran back to the city to tell everyone who would listen about the one who gives living water. All right, let's come back to the triumphal entry. During the terrible, wonderful week after Jesus rode into Jerusalem, humble and endowed with salvation, the very people who out of all the people on the earth should have known that they needed his salvation were the same ones who ended up most militantly rejecting him as their Messiah. To understand how that happened, all we really have to do is take a good look at the things that Jesus said to the Jews, especially the leaders of the Jews, during the few days of that week before he was arrested. In Matthew chapter 21, at the end of the parable of the two sons, Jesus said in verse 31, Truly I say to you that the tax gatherers and the harlots will get into the kingdom of God before you, you Pharisees, you religious leaders. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax gatherers and the harlots did believe him. And you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterwards so as to believe in him. To believe him. A little later, after another parable, the parable of the landowner, Jesus said this, again, he's speaking to the leaders. He said, did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. Anybody know which psalm he's quoting there? Psalm 118. Remember we were just talking about that psalm? That's the psalm that the people in Jerusalem were shouting out as Jesus rode into Jerusalem when they said, Hosanna to the Lord in the highest. That's the psalm. But Jesus starts with an indictment. Did you not read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone? 
And then he says, therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and it will be given to a nation producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was talking about them. And when they sought to seize him, they became afraid of the multitudes because they held him to be a prophet. In the next chapter of Matthew, during that same week, the Sadducees, another branch of the leadership of, of the Israelites, they came to Jesus and they tried to trick him with a, they tried to trip him up with a trick question. And Jesus in Matthew twenty two twenty nine said to them, "You are mistaken. It's really stronger than that. You err. You commit." error because you do not under, understand the scriptures and you do not understand the power of God. He's talking to the religious leaders. He tells them they don't know the scriptures and they don't know the power of God. In the next chapter, in Matthew chapter 23, we find seven woes that Jesus declares to the religious leaders of Israel, the scribes and the Pharisees. And I'm just going to read from verse 27 to the end of that chapter. Listen to this. This is, this is uh, no punches pulled. Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you, you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly, you were full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and you adorn the monuments of the righteous. And you say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. And then Jesus said, consequently, you bear witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. But he goes on to say they were more than sons, they were participants. He says, fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How shall you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. And some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and you will persecute from city to city. He's talking about his disciples that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things shall come upon this generation. And then the last part of the passage is the hardest. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on you shall not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord.
What I find so marvelous about that, that scathing indictment is the very last part of it. <laughs> From now on, you shall not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. See, God, Jesus was not finished with the people that he was indicting. Some of those very people would come to faith in him before they died. And some, when he comes back, some of the Jews, I think many, will welcome him and they will finally do an earnest from the heart. They will declare what was declared when Jesus walked into that city the first time on the first Palm Sunday. And they will declare it. They will declare it in righteousness because they will have been transformed by him. One of the profound ironies of the triumphal entry is that the psalm that the crowd was quoting when they called out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is the very same psalm that declared that the builders, the rulers in, among the Jews, the religious leaders, would reject the very one to whom those praises would be directed. And that was already going on when Jesus before Jesus even set foot in the city. They were already conspiring to determine how to get rid of him. Why did all these religious leaders do everything that they could come up with to ensure the crucifixion of Jesus at the end of that week? Well, the one that that crowd declared to be the long-promised Messiah spent that whole week, he spent that whole week as we just saw, making it very abundantly clear to everyone in Jerusalem that those men that they considered to be the most righteous people in the world were nothing, <laughs> nothing but whitewashed tombs. Pretty on the outside, but full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness on the inside. After declaring all those things, Jesus presents a few more kingdom parables, and then he goes willingly to the cross by the eternal decree of the triune God to accomplish what is impossible with men and possible only with God. He, he went to the cross and he bought in our place the salvation of our souls by the price of his own poured out blood. The point... Uh, of everything we've been talking about here is that when Jesus rode into Jerusalem that day in humility and bearing the salvation that all of mankind desperately needed, the multitudes that wel welcomed him were celebrating the right victor but the wrong victory. They were, cel they were praising the right Savior, but they were looking for the wrong salvation. They were honoring the right King but they were just as utterly unworthy to be citizens of that kingdom as you and I are in ourselves. And there was absolutely nothing that they could do about it. They lived in broken cisterns of their own making. And they, they not only couldn't get out of those cisterns, they didn't even recognize what they were. They were too busy decorating them to know what they were. And it was not just the leaders of Israel that had it wrong. When Jesus was arrested and was being shamed and mocked and beaten, first by the temple soldiers and then by the Roman soldiers, 
the same multitude that had honored him as the long-promised king on Palm Sunday turned against him, and they joined in the chorus of voices that was demanding his crucifixion. Most of the people in that crowd turned from praise to condemnation. Even Jesus' own disciples did not understand that he had to suffer, die, and be raised from the dead in order to save them, in order to fulfill the prophecies of the coming Messiah and Savior. Even though Jesus had told them, as Bob pointed out, Jesus had told them over and over that this is what must happen. They could not hear it. And even those 11 men who had walked side by side with Jesus for three years, abandoned him on the night of his arrest. Just as the prophet Zechariah had said they would 500 years earlier. Earlier that same evening before Jesus' arrest, Peter swore to Jesus that no matter what anyone else did, he, Peter, would be right there alongside Jesus no matter what happened, all the way to the bitter end. <laughs> and of course, Jesus told, told him that's not how this is going to go down. You will deny me three times tonight. Peter had rightly acknowledged Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. You remember, in, in John's Gospel, John says that's what you have to believe in order to be saved, that Jesus is the Christ, the long-promised Messiah, the Son of the living God. Peter had believed that. But Peter was still relying on the strength of his own resolve to commend him to Christ. Peter's promise to Jesus was a waterless cistern. Just like the broken waterless pits on which Judah had relied in the, in the days of Jeremiah. Many of you have heard me read this quote that I'm about to read before, and it's wonderfully fitting here. This is by, it's from a marvelous little book called The Hammer of God that was written in the early 1900s by a Swedish Lutheran named Bo Geertz. When he refers here to the way of obedience, he's talking about people who seek to earn God's favor by their obedience and their own strength. Please listen carefully to this quote. The way of obedience leads to the foot of the cross. There one stands, a poor wretch, like Peter on that first Good Friday, full of shame and despair, looking upon his crucified Savior whom he had been unable to follow. There it becomes apparent that the Lord's best disciples are unworthy of him. They are all betrayers and deniers, sharing in the guilt of his death. But there, at the cross, it also becomes clear that the Lord himself makes atonement for their sins. Where the way of obedience ends at Golgotha with judgment upon us, everyone who believes may nevertheless stand on this rock of atonement. There, the way of grace begins, the new and holy way through the veil the way that is sanctified by his blood. That is marvelous. 
Friends, you cannot drink from the fountain of living water if you're still decorating your waterless pit. You can dig holes till the cows come home, but God will see to it they they never hold a drop of water. And the last part of this is just as important. We cannot rescue ourselves from our waterless pits. We don't even recognize what they are. That's why we spend so much time trying to patch them up and make them look nice. The works of our hands will never bring us the shalom that is the birthright of every child of God. Praise God that even once he saves us, he never stops teaching us that. The failure of the crowd gathered in Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday is still alive and flourishing in the hearts of human beings today. (laughs) And the implications of that failure apply not only to condemned unbelievers, but to redeemed saints. Nothing that you and I will ever do will bring true life and blessing to us or to anyone else that we love. If you're here today and you're counting on anything that you have done or on anything that you intend to do to make you worthy to dwell in the kingdom of Jesus Christ, may today be the day that you get to watch God peel the wallpaper off your waterless pit so you will finally recognize it for what it is. May today be the day that he humbles you to abandon all trust in yourself to make you right with God so that you trust only entirely in Jesus. He's the only one that can rescue you. Your part is simply to receive the gift that he already purchased in your place when he gave his life for you on the cross and was raised from the dead on the third day. The way you receive that gift is by trusting him, by trusting with childlike faith in the one who paid for that gift with his own life's blood to buy you for himself. Abandon all trust in yourself. Trust only in him, and you will be saved. If you're here today and you have already received that indescribable gift of forgiveness and eternal life, you need to know just as I do that it is both possible and all too common for men and women who have put their their trust in Jesus alone to save them from their sin debt and to clothe them with his righteousness and to give them eternal life on the basis of his, his atoning blood alone. It is all too common for those people to spend their days looking to themselves to provide well-being to themselves or to other people. I, guys, in, in, doing, in doing counseling for hurting marriages, there's nothing more catastrophic to a marriage than this. When one person believes that they are the source of well-being for the other person, or that the other person is the source of their well-being. Or that they are the source of their well-being. It destroys relationships between human beings because we put other people in God's seat, either us or someone else. And they can't can't keep that assignment. 
if people actually trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as, to, as the Savior of their souls, the one and only Savior, then they're saved. But, but they're also bitched. They're sidelined if they spend their days trusting in themselves to be the source of blessedness or in anybody else to be the source of blessedness and not in Christ alone. You will never be the source of well-being for yourself or for your spouse or for your children or for anyone else that you care about, and they will never be the source of well-being for you. If you're still depending on things that you have done or that you intend to do to bring shalom to yourself or to the people that you love, may today be the day that you get to watch God peel the wallpaper off of your waterless pit so you finally recognize it for what it is. And then you reach and you grab his hand and you let him pull you out of it because he's the only one that can do that. You can't do it for yourself. God will remind, if you're his child, God will remind you and me of this marvelous and liberating truth as many times as is necessary. He has to remind me very often. But the goal of his forbearing love for us is that we will stop decorating our waterless pits and live in constant, prayerful, joyful dependence on the great shepherd and guardian of our souls. Loving Father, we ask that you would open every eye today to recognize that the works of our hands can never deliver us. Father, rip away, tear off the wallpaper, knock out the chipped and useless plaster. Show us the truth about the utter worthlessness of our own effort, our own promises, our own resolve. Convince us that only Jesus can pull us out of our waterless pits and bring us into the place of true life and eternal blessing. That beautiful place of unhindered relationship and fellowship with the one who made us for himself. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.